I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and today we'll be talking about the philosophy of human rights. I have with me Saladin Mekled Garcia, the director of the UCL Institute for Human Rights, and Tom Sorrell, director of the Centre for the Study of Global Ethics at the University of Birmingham. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hello. Uh, so, <coughs> gentlemen, could you uh, begin by telling us the goals of the organisations you head, the Institute and the Centre? Tom, would you like to kick sure. that? <coughs> My centre uh, is really concerned with uh, issues that arise from globalisation. Uh-huh. Uh, probably the central one is uh, the issue to, of, of the distribution of resources between the rich parts of the world and the poor parts of the world. That organises a lot of global ethics. Sure. Um, but human rights is, uh, is uh, one of the kinds of theories that are used to to talk about that. We also do a lot of research. We do a lot of funded research Mm -hmm. projects, and we run two MSCs, including an MSC in Human Rights and Human Values. So maybe you'd say that perhaps the goal is to uh, come up with a uh, coherent uh, attitude towards globalisation? Yes, but um, perhaps a, a coherent attitude, but I think we're also interested in trying to address uh, specific policy problems and policy questions in a way that's realistic. Okay. So it's not just a matter of um, articulating an ideal theory. It's a it's a matter of trying to confront some of the issues that arise in globalization. For instance, counterterrorism is something sure. we've dealt with. Sure. I think we'll probably talk a bit about that mm-hmm. later. Uh, Okay, Saladin, what about the uh, the UCL Institute for Human Rights? Yes, um, similar to the Tom Center, we we work in the area of policy, um, yeah. and we we actually try to influence policy to some extent in terms of not not in taking a partisan position, but in terms of of trying to feed in academic research into policy making. Okay, so it's a sort of like a lobby. Uh, uh, not so much a lobby, but more like a think tank, but without without a particular axe to grind. Okay. Um, we carry out a lot of research that, that does feed into human rights work, and we also p- carry out public engagement events that try and um, bring to the public's eyes, if you like, uh, issues and understandings of, of human rights that they might not otherwise see. Um, just to give one example, we recently had a public debate and discussion um, regarding this, the, the new Commission on Human Rights that's looking at a Bill of Rights for Britain. And we had members of the Commission present there uh-huh. to, uh, to uh, listen to the discussion and the debate and to, to listen to what we had to say. And we've also supplied a, um, a, po- a document to that Commission, which is our evidence, if you like, that they might take into account. So we, we're very active in okay. trying to engage human rights publicly. That's good. So uh, I think you guys are just the sort of... P- people we need to talk about human rights i mean i I would say that most people listening to this show they've probably got a gut belief in human rights but what are we talking about what what are human rights uh um maybe i could have a a, a crack at it to begin with um uh, typically with human rights what we're we're talking about are international standards usually international legal standards Uh and they're usually standards that are um, insisted upon against governments or powerful organizations in relation to individuals or groups that are relatively weak. So okay. one way of understanding human rights uh, is, is as a set of claims or a set of standards about the way that people who are powerful, especially states, should deal with, uh, with people who are vulnerable to their actions. But it's not just states. There are other powerful organizations. Multinationals are, have lately uh, been um, brought into the human rights uh, discourse, uh-huh. and other organizations are powerful without being either states or businesses. 
Okay, so then anything you want to add to that or disagree with it? I, I agree with Tom's characterization of the, the, right. what is effectively the, the world or the, the international practice of human rights. Um, more from a sort of contextual and historical perspective, when that practice was being first codified in the Universal Declaration... Oh, sorry, uh, listeners, that's the uh, United Nations De- Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's right, it's the United Nations... 1948, it was. Right, yeah. um, when it was being framed at that time, you know, the influences that went into trying to frame a set of standards to prevent the kind of atrocities we'd seen yeah. um, in, in Nazi Germany, the Second World War, etc., um, were heavily influenced by ideas of the rights of man, of the uh, United States Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Sure. Um, and these ideas come from a background that we call the natural rights tradition, mm-hmm. which says that there are some fundamental limits on what any government, political authority can do to its citizens or to people uh, okay, in general. Okay, can you uh, be a bit more specific? What sort of things are human rights? What, what is my human right to what? To uh, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Or, or what, where, where are the limits? What are the minimum and what are the maximum? Well, that's, that's a, a difficult question to answer in general. Um, uh, one of the uh, relatively uncontroversial um, uh, human rights is the right to life. Right. Another is the right to be spared torture. Um, there are a range of rights that guarantee the civil liberties, the, the rights to vote, the, the right to, to speak freely. But um, there's a very, very wide variety of, of rights. And um, the, the sort of classical set of rights... Um, is articulated in a pair of treaties that um, really split off from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One uh, treaty talking about civil and political rights, the other talking about economic, social, and cultural rights. Um, But there have been uh, um, documents and treaties um, since then that talk about uh, more specialized kinds of human rights problems. Okay, Saladu? Yes. um, I think whenever you... You try and pin down this notion of human rights. Right. And like you said, that a lot of people have a, an intuition or a gut reaction that, that these are good things because right. they do good things for people. But whenever you try to pin it down, I think you have to pin it down to what point they have, what point they serve. Yeah. And there is a lot of dispute and controversy about what the point is of human rights. But I guess by pinning it down to a few of those, we can get a notion of what the discussion is about. Sure. So here, here's one example would be, Uh, In fact, I'll give two examples. So one example would be uh, a notion of human rights as protecting the minimally worthwhile life. So if you can think of, as many theorists have tried to think of, what you would need in your life as a human being to live a minimally worthwhile life. You'd need some basic security. You'd need some... Um, guarantees that you weren't going to be put on trial for no good reason. So it's not just food and clothing and And housing. you might need things like food and clothing well, as well, and so, on, and so on and so forth. So whatever that list contains, mm-hmm. a lot of, of the theorists have said, well, that's what human rights are, that's what they're about. Okay. Another, the, an alternative view, would be to say that human rights really uh, can't be about that list because that just enumerating all the things that are wonderful for human beings... Yeah could end up with an endless list and could also end up with a lot of costs for a lot of people. Right. Right? It would, it, someone has to provide them. So another set of, of thinkers say that human rights are, in fact, simply limits on the kind of motivations and reasons that governments can use in, in designing their policies. Right? Okay. So if any policy that a government formulates can be said to disrespect or show lack of respect for the status of human beings as such, as... as 
the people who have you know uh, d- designed their own future and their own plans of life mm-hmm. then that policy has to be considered to be in violation right so torture would be an example of that because it treats human beings as means to the ends of achieving information or you know scaring the population etc okay I, I, you both seem to uh, be saying that the rights are something that uh, impinge against governments and um, i don't want to go into that just yet but i do want to ask what are the ethical foundations for saying that people have rights i mean uh, i know that bentham an old philosopher said that um rights were nonsense on stilts <laughs> so that's one criticism of them so why should people why should we philosophically or ethically believe people have rights well, I think the, the question of whether people have rights is, is a, perhaps a bit different from the question of whether they have human rights in the sense of the okay. human rights movement. When people first started to talk about rights, they often were talking about people who had to have certain kinds of competences. For example, um, in order to have rights, sometimes it was said people had to be able to enter into agreements, they had to be able to understand you know, their future, they had to have a certain kind of rationality, mm-hmm. and those uh, qualifying conditions for having rights are sometimes put into doubt uh, by human rights. For, in, for example, there, there's a recent instrument that's uh, connected with disability. Um, one of the main uh, human rights conventions is the Children's Rights right. uh, Convention, and that uh, convention um, actually calls into question whether one has to be an adult, whether one has to be fully rational in order to have, um, in order to have human rights at any mm. rate. So um, I think one of the things one has to um, concede when one's talking about human rights and talking about how far it's possible to make a coherent set of rights out of them is that the pressures that have led to the list of rights are not all conceptual. People haven't been trying to come up with a neat list. They've been trying to come up with a set of standards that respond to history and that are also able to be agreed by a lot of different countries. So the process of deciding which Mm -hmm. rights we have is still ongoing in that case. If I can add, um, a a large problem that we face when discussing human rights in practice, and especially from the naysayers, from people... There are, by the way, plenty of people who would question whether human rights matter or not. um, but one of the, the biggest problems that you face is that people say to you, well, where do they come from? Um, you know, who invented them? You know, where were they found, if you yeah. like? Uh, and really, the only thing we can say about this is that this is a, what we call in philosophy a category error. Right. They're not things. They're not like a, a, a book or a tablet of, of commandments that you find. But they might be laws that you can discover in the same way that you can discover mathematical but laws. But then the question would be, if, if we're looking at it from a, from a... Yes, that's a good question. And then if we're looking at it from a philosophical, moral perspective, uh-huh. the question would be, of those laws that we want to call human rights right. laws, why are they special? Why do they matter? And the reason it's a category... Or I would say it's a category error is because what we're talking about are standards... Right when we're talking about, we're not talking about things. We're talking about standards of behaviour, right. and standards of behaviour can be justified as good or bad according to some set of values. And at the end, we have to ask, what are those values? And what yeah. human rights appeal to are the values of human dignity. Is it the standard one that's mentioned in the mm. in the uh, Universal so Declaration? What does that mean, human dignity? Well, this is a very that, good question. That, that, that is a good question. I, I mean, one of the things that's meant by by, by human dignity is certainly. Um, to spare people 
um, humiliation right. and to spare people discrimination. Um, equality is an important part of dignity. Um, and certain kinds of treatment, which in human rights terms are sometimes regarded as a violation of human dignity, uh-huh. are in other connections more naturally regarded as wrong for other reasons. For example, to, to say that torture is primarily an assault on dignity, mm. um, strikes me as a, as a little counterintuitive. I mean, what, what's terribly bad about it is the pain. Yeah. It's, fanta- it's yeah. excruciating. And I'm not sure that excruciatingness runs only through human dignity. It runs through the, you know, the sense receptors in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, torture has this, further ish- uh, has this further aspect, at least as it's defined in human rights treaties, that to count as torture an action has not only to cause excruciating pain, psychological or physical, but it has to be pain that's inflicted by someone who's acting in an official capacity. So mm-hmm. if I um, stub a cigarette butt out on you or, um, or inflict some other kind of, of, of excruciating pain on you, um, if that's just an interpersonal um, um, action, um, that isn't torture according to the Convention Against Torture. To be torture according to the Convention Against Torture, it's got to be done by somebody acting for a government, say, in the course of an interrogation or for some other kind of uh, reason. Sure. I mean, that sounds like uh, getting into the real difficulties of defining human rights down to, like, a legally precise uh, mm-hmm. level, I suppose. But I, uh, I'm still not sure these things that are supposed to be my right just because i'm a human being why why just because i'm a human being do i have rights is still the question i want to ask i I guess this goes down this comes down to um one one of the deepest questions in morality which Uh is why why do we value anything in the first place Mm -hmm. now if we see that in the world, as individuals, we all value different things. We all want different things out of out of life. You know, some of us want to play that guitar really well, and some of us want to make a lot of money, and some mm-hmm. of us uh, want to just run a charity shop, and wh- whatever it may be that you find valuable. Ultimately, these goals, these notions of goals in life, boil down to what people choose, what they want out of their lives. Uh, not necessarily in any rich kind of autonomous way, but just what they find that they have attachment right. to. Um, and morality tries to find a way of accommodating the fact that everybody has these different goals and aims. And one way to accommodate these as the values of life mm-hmm. is to respect people's separateness, to respect the fact that we have different goals and aims and that we shouldn't use someone else for our own goals and aims without their consent or without you know without if it's going to cause them excruciating pain or you know if it's going to end their life okay so uh, it, if you like at the, the bottom line is this recognition that we're all individual creators of our own parts and and that's what's to be respected so well, well, what about well, if, 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 if i could if i could just inter- intervene i think there's a tendency here and i i think uh, it's very natural um, to say that you know um, human rights are continuous with morality, that's not entirely right. Because, um, for example, if if I lie to you, I've done something wrong, right. and I may even have violated a right of yours, um, uh, arguably. But nobody would say that I have a human right not to be lied to. When we talk in this way about what is a human right, we're talking about the fact that something that some standard of behavior has to be recognized, so to speak, officially, internationally, in a big way. It's got to be sort of a public 
publicly undeniable standard, and that's a, a, a fairly special part of morality as uh, as opposed to all of morality. Okay, you say that, but I, I'm sure uh, somebody might reply, look, even if nobody recognised my human rights, wouldn't I still have human rights to X, Y, Z? I think I, I agree to some extent with what Tom, Tom was saying. There is a, there is a mis- in fact, it's the most... It's one of the most prevalent public misconceptions. Right, okay. So well, when, when people stand up. up in their front room and, and they shout at the television and they say, well, what about my human right to have my supper or yeah. something like that? What they're misunderstanding, or what about my human right not to, not to suffer indignity of having to witness this or of being lied to or whatever it might be? Um, what, they're, what they're doing is exactly what Tom was saying, which is running together the whole of morality, the whole of the sta- all of the kinds of standards that we might use in morality. And, right. and there are plenty which seem quite valid, like do, do good by your parents right. or don't lie to your friends or, or don't lie to anyone for yeah. that matter if you yeah. don't, unless it's absolutely necessary right. or treat, you know, be kind to animals or something like that. Mm. So the mistake would be to confuse all of morality with human rights. That's number okay. one. I think what Tom was also saying was if we want to say what's the special role of human yeah. rights Please. in all of that moral stuff, you know, what makes human rights different from just not, you know, the, the standards, the same standards that say don't lie to people. Um, and one way to do that that's been done by theorists um, who, who write about it is by saying human rights are especially political. They, gen- I mean, not always, but okay. in general, they focus on large scale sort of uh, author- authoritative institutions and they tell them what the mm. standards they should live up to should be. Okay. So that seems to be a, a sort of developing consensus in, the, in this room anyway. However, um, I would actually, I would say that there are people who disagree with that. Yeah, so Tom right. says, uh, I, don't, you know, uh, I don't think anyone would say lying, is, but there, uh, a writer called Alan Gaworth actually did say that he thought that you had a right not to be lied to, a human right not to be lied to, and a human right to have c- promises kept to you. So, okay. Um, well, this brings, I, I guess, if there are natural human rights, doesn't this mean there are natural human responsibilities? Or, in other words, who practically has the responsibility to implement our rights? Well... <clears throat> the the question of who has the uh, the the responsibility to implement uh, rights is um, fairly heavily disputed. T- to focus on one area where the dispute is this fair- is assuming that we do have rights. Though. If we if we do have rights, to focus on one area where the dispute is fairly intense. Right. Um, if we look at uh, at uh, some of the human rights in the one of the main covenants, the the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, right. that recognizes a right to health, but it isn't uh, formulated as a right to basic health. It's um, a right to the highest attainable standard of health. Right. We know from the, the, the management of the welfare state that um, health requirements could be almost indefinitely expanded mm-hmm. and be very difficult to meet, and we know that they're very expensive to meet. We know that the National Health Service is, is, is very expensive. So the question arises, how can there be this human right which um, appe- appears to be very demanding and appears because it's a human right not to be ignorable. Mm-hmm. How can there be such a right, irrespective of what, resor- of what resources there are? Mm-hmm. And what happens when uh, the right to health is pressed against a very poor jurisdiction, for instance? What are they supposed to do about it? In this kind of a case, what hu- the human rights movement says is that the, the, the right to health has to be 
um, secured internationally where a particular jurisdiction is unable to do it itself. And it, it also says that in, in the range of these, in the case of these, these uh, resource-requiring rights, that um, the extent to which these rights are met varies with the resources available in, in a country. Or, or it's possible that you could say if it can't be provided, then it isn't really a right. Well, yes, that's that's in, if I may, if I may, please. that's in fact part of that. The, there's a, there is a debate exactly <coughs> where one half mm. of the debate says, given that the right to health can't, uh, there isn't an obvious duty person to hold the duties yeah. in every case, and there are instances, as Tom pointed out, where you have states that themselves, even if they wanted to, couldn't fulfil that requirement, which is the highest level of attainable physical and mental health, by the way. So it's not even mm-hmm. just physical. Um, but that's an impossible formulation exa- yes. of a right, isn't so, it, really? So there are, well, there are huge problems. But hi- highest attainable means, you know, already has a limit on it. But, but there's a big issue here, which is the issue of uh, the one you raised, which is the question of if something uh, could be extremely demanding, could outrun our capacity to meet it, could it be yes. actually a, a, a human <laughs> rights requirement? And... Um, I think that's a very good question. Um, the, the the question of whether um, it's it's a special case of the of the whether ought implies can. Um, I suppose we could run it both ways. We could sometimes say that even though we're not able to to meet a particular standard, still we ought to strive to get there, and that there are certain uh, degrees. That so we they're can not meet. Uh, they're not really right. So ideals now. This is a this is a very good question. Um, <clears throat> There, uh, a branch of the discussion says that if you have something which is a nice idea, which everyone would like, and if everybody had it, they would have a nice life, yeah. or, or at least a minimally decent life. But it's not something that we can right now say who has to provide that because there's just no answer to that question given what it would require. Mm-hmm. Then you don't really have a human right at all, says this group of people. What you have is, as you've exactly put it, a nice ideal or a, what they call a manifesto right or... Right. Or an, you know a good aim, but it's not a right. Mm. Okay. Now, um, I think maybe again this this there is a question here about running together a number of of different moral standards. We have standards in in political philosophy. There are standards for what society should do with their resources. At least there are th- there are good theories that mm-hmm. people contend over. And those theories come under the broad heading of egalitarianism, fairness, uh, prioritarianism. Some people talk about so prioritizing the people at the bottom of society, etc. Yeah. And these what these theories say is they don't say this is exactly what a- a- each person should have in that society because no. if they started to prescribe that, it doesn't take into account what society can do. Mm. But what they do say is. If society is to be fair, then it must distribute things, let's say, in a way that prioritizes the least advantage or in a way that treats everybody with equal concern. And maybe one of the problems has been is that the human rights movement, given that it's not a a philosophical treatise, it's actually just a movement that emerged from certain historical circumstances, wants to talk about what we can call social justice, but only had the language of human rights to talk about it. Right. Mm. And, and that, that presents an issue. Well, okay. but uh, I think this is where we, we need to remember that human rights is not just a philosophical or maybe even primarily a philosophical idea or, or a kind of coherent philosophical uh, theory, mm. um, but it's a set of institutions that operate internationally. Now, let's take the case of what happens in practice in the human rights mm-hmm. uh, machinery 
when a country that has relatively few resources is brought to book, so to speak, by one of the treaty bodies for not meeting its requirements. What happens in such a case is that a treaty body, that is to say a body that oversees a set of human rights standards and that tries to enforce in a certain way people's commitments to uh, realize those standards, it says to countries, particular countries, it says, well, you know, we realize that uh, you don't have the resources to do this, but look, here's a comparable country, a country that that, that actually um, uh, is, is maybe a neighboring country that has a similar uh, level of income. It's able to do this. Why aren't you able to do this? And, and that's a very cogent uh, line of argument, and that's, that's a line of argument that is very, very familiar okay. from the way human rights treaty bodies operate in the real world. So it's a very practical approach. Uh, we're going to just cut in for a song now. This is going to be Mothers of the Disappeared by you two, and then we'll come back with some more discussion on human rights.
Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You're listening to Philosophy Now radio show. Tonight uh, we're talking about human rights philosophy with Saladin Mechlid-Garcia, the director of the UCL Institute for Human Rights, and Tom Sorrell, director of the Centre for the Study of Global Ethics at the University of Birmingham. We've so In the last half of the show, we sort of provisionally concluded that human rights are incumbent on states or powerful organisations against people. But there is a problem as to who is required or to supply or protect these rights. So I want to ask the question now, what are the limits on human rights? What are the sort of minimum that can probably be considered a human right? And what's the sort of maximum? And and when we go into the maximum, I'm sure we get into, you know, modern issues. Yeah, um, well, just just to uh, to start the discussion going, um, it's actually part of the of the human rights movement, uh, part of the official uh, credo. Uh, this comes from the Vienna Declaration um, um, in in the nineties that all of the the human rights are interdependent. So this question of which is basic, uh, which are the non negotiable mm-hmm. rights, is supposed in a certain way to be an illicit question. Uh, of course, even within human rights, though, there, there is a division between human rights that are limitable <coughs> and human rights that can be suspended, say suspended in, in the case of an emergency, okay. like the right to movement, and rights that are, that are so-called non-derogable rights that states can never suspend, like the right to be spared torture, for example. That can never be suspended. So the other ones, the suspendable ones, they're more peripheral, really, then, in that sense, aren't they? Well, that's a disputed question. <laughs> um, it is indeed. <laughs> um, I think maybe we should, as you indicated, is to, to look at this matter from the other side. It's to yeah. look at, at who should who should pay for this. Okay. Right? Let, let, I, I want to use that word, pay for this, not because I have some kind of um, sort of rant to have about, you know, taxes, etc., just because it's, a, it's a, a neat way of putting it. Every right has a cost. Yeah, sure. Some, even your right not to be tortured means that some people must put in place some mechanisms to, to protect you from others who might torture you, say. Okay. Um, even your right to, to life requires some kind of people looking out for your security in public, you know, putting in places, no. lowering risks and such, perhaps. So the question is, who must, who must pay for that? And the limit question, what are the limits of rights, I suppose, is responsive to that question sure. of who must pay. Because if, you're, if you ask for something that's limitless, mm-hmm. or, uh, at like least limitless health, in uh, the sense, yes, or, or that imposes enormous costs on other people, um, it would be hard to argue that this was a fundamental requirement that you must have, right, uh, irrespective of what it meant, meant for others. Now, some people bringing here what, what we can call constraints or, or, or practical limits. Um, one of the standard practical limits, as, as Tom mentioned earlier, was the, the ought implies can. If society can't afford to give you this, then it doesn't have an obligation to give it to you. If others would be taxed to poverty themselves in but order that, to that, supply it. Then that's a dodgy have. argument, because I'm sure some economists from southern United States in the pre-Bellum uh, years would say, you know, I can't afford to give up my slaves, I'd go bankrupt, uh, mm. you know, so therefore the, the abolition of slavery can't be a human right. Yes. And, and I think that's a good question to raise. And I think the, the problem arises because of running together two types of rights issues, I think. And one is, is an issue of treatment, 
which yeah. we can call an issue of treatment. So to treat someone as a slave is to take a certain attitude to them, and mm. that attitude is the problem. Now, you, you might try to boil the attitude down to things like pain and coercion and suffering, but under certain circumstances, we, we don't... We don't think that pain and coercion and suffering... Well, suffering, certainly, but we don't think that pain and coercion are necessarily wrong. Being in prison is very painful and involves coercion. Mm-hmm. But we think it's justified for certain people to undergo that given, given our penal system. So it can't just be that you need these, this kind of set of things to live a happy life. And, and happiness can't be the sole reason that we at- ascribe certain rights to you. It has to be about how you're treated by others. And the thing is, you can understand what that means and what a state or, or whatever agent it might be t- is to treat you in a, good, in, a, in a way corresponding to your status. But when you bring in questions of giving you a life that's worth living, when you bring in what mm-hmm. we can call questions of the good life, then we start to get into issues about costs. Right? Mm-hmm. We start to, to ask, well, how much of a good life are you entitled give, to have given that someone else has to give up some of their good life? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and those are questions about fairness. Yes, and, okay. and, and, and that's one of the reasons why there's pressure uh, within the human rights framework toward identifying human rights with minimum standards, that yeah. is, minimum internationally recognized standards. Admittedly, it's a rising minimum, but it's a minimum standard nevertheless. Maybe I could approach the issue of limits from a different direction, yeah, sure. though, because th- th- there are many different ways of coming at this. One way is by thinking about... Uh, an ordinary human being. We can think about an ordinary human being pursuing various projects and pursuing those projects fairly harmlessly. So they try not to interfere with other people. They 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 only um, uh, behave peacefully and so on. When the state or when other people try to encroach on these folks who are harmlessly mm-hmm. pursuing their their life, um, there's some that th- you know that strikes one as 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 rather um, objectionable, and that's one of the sources of of human rights. But we can imagine other folks whose uh, goals in life are fairly harmful. Uh, criminals and other uh, uh, people who have fairly malign uh, um, objectives, and who say, "Aha." Here are the protections for the law-abiding. Here are the protections for the the harmless and the meek. I'm going to to have some of those in the pursuit of my own projects. And this is where one gets to the limits of of, of human rights um, in another way, yeah. where where one one sees uh, criminals, um, uh, very of the of a routine kind. Um, standing on their rights <clears throat> to have a case against them proved in a court of law, standing on their due process rights, yeah. perhaps getting off, as people say, on a technicality, where the technicality is meant to protect the ordinary law-abiding well, this, citizen. This shows how, you know, how this human rights issues touch every day, because obviously the criminal rights issue is, is in the news at the moment. But uh, doesn't it show that maybe some rights are more fundamental than the others? Like, say, the the right of the victim is more fundamental than the right of the perpetrator in 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 certain senses. Not in you know obviously every sense, but in certain ways. It it depends which which rights we're talking about for each one. Okay, uh-huh. so let's let's pass this out. Let's let's split it all up. Um, so certainly the, the the victim has a right not to be harmed right. right and that right is is allows for protections of quite a high degree including protection sometimes that will cause harm to the perpetrator if that's what it will take to prevent them the police okay. 
I think it's reasonable that the police can tackle someone down or, or even shoot them in the leg, say, so, to, so to prevent I, a murder. Can I sort of make a generalisation from this? Is that it implies that um, that some under some circumstances people can give up their rights or alienate their well, rights, yeah? It, 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 certainly rights can be limited. Um, rights can be limited by other rights. Sure. And certainly in certain cases, rights can be suspended, even according to human rights instruments. Mm. But I think there still is a residue <coughs> in human rights of saying that even offenders... And remember that offenders in some jurisdictions are people who've, who've done nothing that we would regard as criminal... In human rights, yeah. generally, there's the, the idea that even the offender is a human being and there's a core of standards that, has to, that have to be maintained for offenders even in, 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 in the case of punishment. So, for example, uh -huh. the human rights approach to punishment says that the only kind of punishment, the only kind of bad treatment that you can give to people um, is incarceration, the loss of liberty. You're not allowed to do anything else. You're not allowed to, to, to slap people. You're not allowed to, to, you know, to deprive them of, of their food. You're not allowed to do any of those kinds of things. And on the contrary, human rights standards about prisons say that you should try uh, to keep the, um, the, the form of life within prison as close as possible to life outside so as to ease the person's transition back to civil status. Because in most jurisdictions, as soon as you've served your sentence, you revert to a citizen with full rights, even according to the most right-wing people. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's, uh, that's really right on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess uh, there's, a, there's a distinction here between what positive and negative rights i guess which means the rights that you have for people to lay off you and the rights mm. that you can expect other people to provide for you uh, and i think the real question is with the positive rights i mean what are the again what are the limits of that i mean do prisoners have voting rights or or coming back to this uh, latest uh, issue on on the disability living allowance i mean do uh, do uh, how far does the right to state benefits go to people, for instance? Yes, I, I think once, once again, to go back to what we said right at the beginning, which was that um, there are different standards within morality uh -huh. and that if you, those people who imagine that human rights consume all of morality right. are missing out on an important trick, let's put it that way. Um, one way to, to, to look at these matters is to ask... Um, if, if we remove the word human rights and we ask what would fairness require, what would social fairness require with regard to disability leaving allowance yeah. or with regard to, um, uh, let's say, even student, you know, student grants uh, you, you, uh, or, or the student fees issues. Right? Uh -huh. I, had, uh, I saw a lot of posters with students sort of on the demonstrations in the papers saying, you know, we have a human right to education. Now, what you could say is social fairness requires that society treats all individuals in a fair way, mm -hmm. right, that it doesn't let anybody fall by the wayside, that if, you know, if people can't help themselves, that it provides some kind of floor that they can't fall below and so, so right. on and so forth, and that it seeks to distribute the cost of that in an equitable way, right, right. so that it taxes the right people 
um, maybe the bankers say <laughs> to yeah. to provide for that. If we look at it from that perspective, that problem isn't such a, a, a big deal. It's it's only when you try and impose the language of human rights on it uh-huh. that it suddenly starts to look mystical and magical. It's like, is there some kind of magical aura out there in the world that's going to provide everyone with their with these you know fundamental hmm. goods, hmm. or or is it this this a question of fairness? So I, I think that that solves it. With, with the prisoners' question, I, I think that's a little bit more complicated because that's that there's a lot of people out there who hold a view called the forfeiture view they believe that if you've committed a crime you somehow forfeit every right that you had and that's why you can't regardless of the level of crime uh, i think i mean there are variations on the view and one variation would say that the more crime you committed the more rights you forfeit right Right, and the worse your crime the more the rights and you we had in a way that's the middle position that this government our current government took they said Okay, we're going to listen to the ECHR, and we're going to say, okay, if you be, if you're only in prison for a very short period of time, then uh, for you know, let's say shoplifting, then maybe you, you know, voting is not a big problem. But if you're a murderer, then you can't vote, right? So you forfeited that right. Mm. And that's a different question, I think, that, and that's mm. that's a difficult one. It's a problematic one because, as as Tom rightly said, it would be problematic to imagine that human beings forfeited their their fundamental rights. <laughs> I, I think on on the on the prisoners' rights um, one. Um, uh, there's a very interesting sort of set of empirical facts about this. First, a lot of jurisdictions, including jurisdictions that are not famous for human rights uh, protections, allow uh, prisoners to vote. And one reason why one might is because a single vote doesn't make that much difference. Yeah. So th- there isn't really very much danger in it. And uh, there's this point that people uh, revert automatically to having the right as soon as their 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 uh, their prison term ends. So. Uh, the 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 case for for uh, giving um, prisoners a lot of uh, civil rights and human rights is is probably quite strong in the sense that there isn't a good answer to what's wrong with it very much, no. but it, but it has to be pointed out that um, over the time that the human rights um, instruments have been developed in the post-war world, there's quite a lot of um, differences in what the the uh, the different uh, instruments permit. For instance, these standards on the, the treatment of prisoners that I'm alluding to, mm-hmm. which are called minimum standards, um, assume that the only thing you can do to, to offenders is deprive them of liberty. But the right to life in uh, that's in the um, ICCPR, in the Civil and Political uh, Rights Treaty, um, allows that uh, there can be capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was in 1966. Nowadays, the European uh, uh, Convention... Uh, wouldn't uh, be operating with uh, a default position, uh, any kind of position uh, that allows for the death penalty. So even within um, the set of human rights instruments, standards have shifted. Yeah. And um, the treatment of punishment is, uh, there's a difference between modern and so is it, is it becoming like the subset of the legal system? Is the human rights system then? It's always been heavily legal. Yeah. It's certainly shaping. Uh, large parts of, of legal systems in, in countries, in, in states that accept them, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. there are plenty of states in which um, they would do everything but accept them. Mm-hmm. Well, they would say they'd accept mm-hmm. them, obviously, but I think one of, that's one of the more interesting things, is that, that it's very difficult to find a state in the world this day that says human rights are bad. Well, that's just what, was, what was my next question, is uh, how do we deal with cultures which don't recognise the ethical foundations for human rights we have and the rights that follow from them? I mean, is it good to just steam in there and say, look, we're, we're liberals and you've got to be liberals <laughs> too? 
Well, you, I, uh, yes, sir. Just one, a couple of, of, of remarks. First of all, you've got you've got some jurisdictions that pay lip service to human rights. Uh-huh. So you have some recently ex-totalitarian regimes in Eastern Europe who have literally cut and pasted, <laughs> you know, uh, sections of constitutions from from sort of acceptable constitutions because it's a, it's a condition of accession to the European Union, for example. So you have people who don't really believe in human rights but profess to believe in it. Right. And then on the other hand, you've got some conventions that have been signed by every single country in the world. So if one is making the claim that there are some pockets of human rights resistance in the world, it's really very difficult to make that out. Well, I hear China being mentioned uh, in this regard on the radio a lot. So... Um I mean, China's known for its abuses of human rights. Uh, it sure, is indeed. Sure. And the, the, this again, I mean, it, the, just to show that the philosophical questions that we've been discussing have massive potential reflections in the real world. Right. What, the Chi- what the Chinese government argues quite consistently, uh, whether it's good to argue it or not is another matter, what it argues is that the kind of human rights that we're talking about when we criticize it are, are, are we're very biased about them. We're, we're talking about liberties and freedoms. We're talking about liberal yeah. rights. But it would say that if you compare the situation from when it came into power in, you know, in the, uh, the middle of the last century and now, it has saved millions and millions of human lives, right, mm-hmm. because it ended poverty in China, or at least reduced it so significantly that at that, when it first came into power, you had a life expectancy was, was below 40 years old as, as a standard, mm-hmm. and that now life expectancy is, is, you know, comparable to any Western country, at least in, in you know, some of the, the more developed parts of China. And it would say that was its contribution to human rights. It achieved this great yeah. sort of, you know, achievement. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it does have an argument. It's just that the interesting thing is that the argument is still on the basis of human rights. It's not saying we don't agree with human rights. Human rights are bad and we should, you know, people should suffer and should be tortured. It's got they a say, different way of achieving the same human rights. That's its well, claim. That's yes. And, uh, you know, it certainly wants to talk this language and it certainly wants to say that it's meeting these standards. It doesn't want to say these standards are alien and mm. unjustifiable. But I've got to say that from my early experience, Experience. I, I was once involved in a in a European China dialogue over human rights, and the form this dialogue took was that uh, the Chinese members of this dialogue would read vast sections of legislation <laughs> that they had introduced, mm-hmm. and that was their way of meeting human rights standards: is that they legislated appropriately, whereas. In, in a developed human rights respecting jurisdiction, everything is a lot more nuanced. There's a lot more self-criticism. There's a lot more acknowledgement of the difference between what's required by legislation and, and the way that things actually work. And, and that's the mark of a mature human rights respecting jurisdiction, that it is self-critical. Um, I know the uh, Mao Zedong invented the, uh, the the idea of criticism and self-criticism <laughs> in a certain sense, but yeah. they sure don't practice it in the human <laughs> well, rights dialogue. Let me do a bit of a devil's advocate there. I mean, uh, say I was a Chinese, for instance, I might say, okay, you respect civil and political rights, but you don't ex- you don't uh, respect the economic right of people to you know have enough to eat necessarily mm. or. 
something that's like a, that. There's in, loads indeed, indeed, that is one provision. of that is one of the arguments, and the other one is that they they also respect the civil and political ones because they have them on the statute sure. books. Okay. Of course, I mean, what what we can add to that second part of their argument is that um, formally recognizing a set of rights in your constitution or even in, you know in any mm. kind of mm. primary law doesn't in itself mean that you do anything about it. it mm. You know, there's plenty of governments that have it in their laws, and yet you know secretly the secret police come to your to your house at night and take you away and torture you. So you have to develop a human rights culture. You have to, yes. and as, as Tom was saying, you have to develop certain kinds of institutions that, that have oversight, that monitor, that check, mm. that there is consultation with people on the ground about what's going on, that, that people have a chance to change things. Now, the other point... I think, which is also interesting, which is that that, that they might also reply, well, we we put more emphasis and more resources into putting food into people's mouths rather than concentrating on all these legal stuff about, Mm. you know, has my liberty been limited by my my magazine being closed this week because I said something against the government. Mm. So that's an emphasis thing. And and I think that that there's a problem with that one also, right? Mm. Because, well, I'll I'll let Tom answer. Well, well, I was just uh, going to add to that. If... There's an interesting aspect to China, mm-hmm. which, is, which is that um, it's economically, of course, an extremely powerful agent, and there are many, many uh, companies and other bodies who want to be in its good books, and that affects the, 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 the extent to which it's held to human rights standards. But, you know, in the very near recent past, there have been cases of outright public collusion between the Chinese government and and various uh, uh, search engine providing companies, I need go no further, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of presenting the IP addresses of people who were dissidents mm. and colluding in the um, in the gross censorship of uh, of internet activity in China, uh, uh, companies that otherwise would say they would do no wrong, um, really did went and did some wrong in a well, pretty. I guess- ready way you've got to <laughs> prioritize your priorities haven't you um okay uh some human rights concepts seem laudable in theory but in practice seem difficult to implement for example proportionality encountering terrorism mm. how do we respond to that um okay so um there are some ideas or concepts that come with the human rights package. It's not simply that you have, you know, human ri- by saying you have a human right to life and then figuring out what that might mean in terms of a, ni- a good life or a minimally decent life, you, you then solve all the problems about potential conflicts between trying to achieve that goal and other social goals. And mm-hmm. I guess the one with terrorism, the standard question is, given that one important social goal is security for all citizens... Right. Does that not lead to conflicts when you want to look at the rights of individuals? We, we, there's famous important cases that have been in the news today about uh, you know, the government wanting to deport someone who's considered dangerous for terror- terrorism reasons uh, and yet not being able to do so because of, because of uh, human rights constraints. Proportionality is one of these concepts that comes in the package. Yeah. And the idea of proportionality is that if the state can achieve its goal in two ways. One way is a, involves a, a high incursion into people's rights, a, a limitation on their rights to a high degree, and the other one involves a lesser degree of limitation on the rights. It, the state has an obligation to go for the lesser one. Right. 
Well, that's part of the the concept of proportionality. That's the subsidiarity condition of proportionality. But the other bits of proportionality is that a measure has to be effective and that it has to be necessary. And if one looks at um, this very interesting range of activity, where as we we talked about before, where where people um, exploit human rights protections in order to achieve uh, goals that are that are very uh, immoral and that are, and that are harmful. Um, the question arises whether ordinary human rights standards apply in those kinds of cases. And it may be that, you know, that in certain cases counterterrorism has to be more intrusive because we have very self-consciously and uh, aware terrorists than it would have to be um, in dealing with ordinary citizens in ordinary crimes. I think this is an area where the concept of proportionality needs to be discussed critically and and mustn't just be uh, used in a kind of um, okay. mechanical way by human rights lawyers as it often is. But excuse me for being a bit cynical, but I getting a slight impression that it's like you have human rights until we override them with something <laughs> that's more important. I, I think, uh, yes, one has to be careful to to, to uh, divide the legal position from the moral position and try to understand uh, the legal position through the eyes of the moral position to some extent. But but we have to make concessions to the fact, as as we said at the beginning, that this is a this is this practice has a history and it's not it wasn't a moral treatise it's not a, mm-hmm. a a practice developed by philosophers but rather by lawyers now the instruments like the european convention which is the one that the uk is most engages with right. um, have built in under a number of the rights not all of them but under a number of the rights it has built in what are called limitation clauses and it says that under certain circumstances uh-huh. what would otherwise be a right is limited it doesn't mean it doesn't say you don't have the right it says that there is a limitation mm-hmm. on it okay and those limitations are in cases where that are called that are considered paramount or legitimate aims of a state. One of them being to protect the community from from danger, right? Another one being to protect this, to right. protect. Let's say public health is an example, right? So there is a, a limitation clause that says you can limit, say, freedom of expression if it protects public health. So if I have a magazine that says I decide for bad reasons to tell everybody to go to a place where it's known that they will suffer, you know, some disease, mm-hmm. the state can limit me because that is a laudable goal. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and, and this makes sense, right? It does. Uh, right. J- just, just a very, just a very can, short point. We have to keep going back to the idea that human rights is there to protect the folks who, who uh, pursue their objectives as in this harmless a non-interfering way, and when we've got these very different agents who have, um, um, are, you know, who are pursuing malign goals in a kind of ruthless way, human rights isn't meant to protect those folks. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, okay. Anybody got any projects or websites they want to air to the people listening? Quickly. Um, yeah. I. Uh, I would. Th- 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 if you want to follow the. Uh, the Institute for Human Rights at UCL. You can follow us on Twitter um, yeah. at hu- at Human Rights UCL, okay. and we have a website ucl.ac.uk. Okay. Human Rights. Thanks, Saladin and Tom. And if you uh, if you want to find out about um, my centre, it's uh, uh, Global Ethics Birmingham. If you Google that, Global Ethics Birmingham, you'll you'll get us, and there's loads on our website to look at. Okay, and I just want to plug my books, uh, The Meta Revolution and Love, Solitude and Destruction. Buy them online now, they're great. And this is going to be The Levelers.